Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. We're continuing our trek through the book of Hebrews. So we're about halfway through. It's taken us, um, you know, about three months to get halfway through, if that gives you any indication. Um, and there is, there's a lot of dense stuff that is to come. Chapter 7, as we begin to look at it, has already been alluded to a couple times. And so we finally get to that point. And it's going to happen again in chapter 7 where a couple of things are alluded to, but we won't actually talk about them until chapter 8 or chapter 9. And so if you haven't noticed that yet about Hebrews and what the author does is oftentimes he'll introduce a topic and then he'll wait a few chapters to actually talk about it in depth. And so some of the things that we'll look at today, we won't look at in depth because then we wouldn't have anything to say next week or the week afterwards. So um, as we begin to look at the passage together, just want to make sure that you are aware of those things. As we begin to look at chapter 7, you may have heard of this guy before, Melchizedek. And you may have only heard of him because we've been talking about him. We've referenced him a couple times as we've already looked at the book of Hebrews. And if you're thinking, now when I was in Sunday school or when I grew up in church, I don't ever remember there being a little felt character, you know, for Melchizedek. You know, I, I just don't ever remember there being a little special person that had that name and that had any sort of significance. Um, so who we're talking about today, what we're talking about today, might just seem over your head or it might just seem like this is insignificant. But I want us all to realize as we begin to look at chapter 7 that there is a reason why the author of Hebrews includes an entire chapter on this man. And it's really not about this man, but it's about how Christ relates to this man because it's important. And we'll begin to see that as we read chapter 7. And so I pray this morning that, that we would each see how Christ has fulfilled more than we ever even thought was in the Old Testament sometimes. So let's continue to look at the book of Hebrews, and we'll read our text here in Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to read all of chapter 7, and we're going to talk about all of chapter 7, but I don't think we're going to be here a long time. Just <laughs> like someone's saying, well, there's like 28 verses here, you know. what? <laughs> we already started late. We're going to be here forever. Um, don't worry. It's not going to be like that. Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives." One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. 
for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath, by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. That's a mouthful. Let's pray and we'll begin talking about it. God, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for how you care for us, how you have given us your word, how you have given us all of your word. And I pray that as we look at a seemingly obscure passage, at a seemingly obscure figure this morning in Melchizedek and in his relationship to Jesus Christ, God, open our eyes to see, allow us ears to hear that we might see and hear and understand what word you would have for us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if there's nothing else that you get from this morning, a simple truth. The Bible is one big story. The Bible is one big story. The Bible relates to itself all throughout itself. So, what happens in the beginning, it makes a difference in what happens in the middle part. And what it makes a difference in what happens later on. What Jesus Christ did when he came to this earth is he fulfilled all of the Old Testament. And if we are going to study about who Jesus Christ is and why it was so important, the things that he did and who he was, then we have to understand, we have to become students of the Old Testament. If we don't understand the Old Testament, then we won't fully ever understand who exactly Jesus was and what he did, and why those things were so important. Otherwise, we're just left at 2,000 years ago and seeing Jesus out of context. And I've said it 
many times, and I'll say it again, it's important for us to understand things in the Bible in context. And so what we have here in Hebrews chapter 7 is this one big story sort of folding in on Jesus Christ. But we start 2,000 years prior to Jesus Christ in the time of Abraham. And so if you want to turn, we did this a little bit last week, but turn to Genesis and turn to Genesis chapter 14, and you'll see the only time in Genesis where we get Melchizedek. And what's given to Melchizedek is only a few verses. And so if you're reading, if you start your Bible reading plan in January, like a lot of people, or if you just you know, came in the middle of the year and you started reading through your Bible, you're normally going to at least make it through Genesis chapter 14. And you're going to think, I have no idea who this guy is. I have no idea what his purpose was. This is a great little side story to the important stuff of Abraham. And you're going to probably gloss over him. If you never even had the book of Hebrews, we as Americans would probably never even come close to understanding the significance of how Jesus fulfilled and was the greater Melchizedek. But fortunately for us, we have Hebrews. And so we look back to Genesis 14 at where we are introduced to this priest, to this king, and we see where this author of Hebrews gets this story from. So Genesis 14, starting in verse 17. A little context. Abram, or Abraham, had a nephew. His nephew was named Lot. Now, Lot probably was one of those little felt figures that you had in one of the stories when you were going through the Bible in Sunday school, if you grew up in church. You remember Lot, and you remember his wife, and his wife, it didn't turn out very well for her. Um, but you might remember Lot. Lot was stolen. He was kidnapped. All of his stuff was taken by these kings in this area of Canaan, where Abram had settled and Lot had followed. Well, Lot was taken, and Abram says, I'm a good uncle, and so I'm going to go rescue my nephew. And so he takes 318 men, Abram does, and he goes and defeats all of these other kings, and he brings back the spoils, and he brings back his nephew Lot. And on his way back is where we pick up this tale of Melchizedek, verse 17 of Genesis 14. After his return from the defeat of that really long name and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. That's, that's the story. I mean, we could finish reading that paragraph, but we no longer read about Melchizedek. So that's, that's all we have. That is the historical facts that we have about who Melchizedek was. So we find, as we look back in our text in Hebrews about exactly who this guy was. Verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So we just read that, right? Okay. Verse 2. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. So why would Abraham give a tenth 
of all of the spoils of his victory to this random guy who just shows up in the middle of nowhere and then leaves still in the middle of nowhere, why would Abraham give to this man? Well, it continues to talk about him here in verse 2. And to Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's what his name actually means. If you want a class on Hebrew, like the actual language, or biblical Hebrew, then we could go through that, but we don't have time for that today, and that's a lot to explain. But that's what his name actually translated means. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. I mean, that's what it describes him in Genesis 14 and here in Hebrews 7, king of Salem. Now, you might not have picked up on this, but Salem is actually the end of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay, so this is probably the same area. That's why he's king of Salem. He's king in the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan was where Jerusalem's at. It's the promised land. It's where Abraham was told to go by God, go to this land that I'm going to give you. That was the land. This is where this king was. This is where this priest was. And so he has been there. He is there. And he apparently, according to what we're told in Hebrews 7, is greater than Abraham. This is hard to believe, especially compared to what we talked about last week. Because last week, what did we talk about? We looked in Genesis. We looked at Genesis 12 and 13 and 15 and 17 and 22 at least. And we saw over and over and over again how God was going to bless Abram and change his name to Abraham. And then from that, he was going to bless all of the families of the earth. He was going to bring forth from Abram nations. So many people that if you could count the sand on the seashore, then you might be able to count how many descendants were to come from Abram. This is how much God was going to bless Abram. But you have here, in our Genesis 14 account and in Hebrews 7, it told explicitly that Abram was inferior to Melchizedek. Now, that's a pretty bold statement because when you're thinking that this author in Hebrews is writing to people who treasured their heroes of the faith, who treasured especially Abraham, they have their father as Abraham. All of a sudden, you have this author saying, there is one who is actually greater than Abraham in Abraham's own time. And so you have him saying, he's king of Salem. He's king of that area. Abraham didn't actually own any of the land. Abraham was still a sojourner, a nomad. He didn't build a permanent physical place for himself where God gave him. That would take another 400 years before the people would return back, 600 years, before the people would return back to come back to the land, the promised land, when they would be led by Moses up to that point, and then led by Joshua into the land. So it wasn't for several hundred years before the people actually got that land, but this guy was already king of that land and king of Salem. Now, you probably have heard the word before shalom, right? Anybody? Okay, so that's the same sort of word there, Salem, shalom, king of peace. That's why it's called king, he's called king of peace. So he's called king of righteousness and king of peace. And it says there in verse 3, he 
speaking of Melchizedek, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. What he is saying here in verse 3 is simply the fact that Melchizedek comes out of nowhere and then he leaves and you have no idea where he came from. You have no idea where he went other than the fact that he was king of righteousness and king of peace and that he was also a priest at the same time. So he was a king and a priest, but he has no genealogy. Like there's actually no genealogy given for this priest. Why is that important? Okay, hopefully you're, you're sticking with me here because this is a lot of Old Testament stuff that we're talking about this morning. It's important because the Levitical priesthood from the tribe of Levi, from, okay, let's start back at the beginning. Abraham, okay, we all know Abraham, right? Check, okay, awesome. All right, now Abraham had a son, the son of promise, Isaac, all right? We got that? Okay. Now then Isaac had a son, and his name was Jacob, right? Also renamed Israel. Okay, Jacob and Israel are the same guy, same person. Now Jacob had 12 sons, and from Jacob came the 12 tribes of Israel. All right? You still following with me? One of these guys, one of those 12 tribes was Levi. That was one of the guys. And from Levi came the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. You had to, in order to be a priest in the Old Testament, after having received the law from Moses, in order to be a priest, you had to be from the tribe of Levi. And so it was important that you could trace your genealogy back to Levi. To be a Jew, to be a Hebrew, you had to be able to trace your genealogy back to Abraham. And to be a special person, to be a priest in, among the people, among the Jews... Among the Hebrews, you had to trace your lineage back to Levi. Okay, everyone understand that mostly? Okay, all right. So what's so unique about Melchizedek is he has no genealogy. So you can't trace yourself back to him because we have no idea who his descendants are. And you can't figure out where he came from because he appears in the text out of nowhere. And he leaves just the same. And so what the author is trying to present to us is the fact that he has no beginning and no end. So like Jesus, who has no beginning, who has no end, we actually sang that earlier in one of our songs, right? Beginning and the end. I mean, he, he has no beginning. You can't say there is a time when Jesus was not or that there is a time when Jesus will not be. Jesus has always been and he will always be. So like Melchizedek, he came out of nowhere. Apparently, he, there's some sort of he's always been, and apparently he always will be. But what the purpose of this man is, in Hebrews 7, in Genesis 14, he is a type, and I'm, I'm using language now, and I know you're probably wanting to fall asleep and saying this is so academic, and I don't even know why he's talking about this stuff. This is Biblical Theology 101, okay? I've taught that class, <laughs> and I'll probably teach it again. And it's part of what we have in our book that we're studying with several of us um, guys currently, and I'll probably do this with more people um, later on as we continue on in our existence as a church. Um, but this how to understand and apply 
the New Testament. There's a chapter on biblical theology. So I'm going to read for you what a type is. A type analyzes how New Testament persons, events, and institutions fulfill Old Testament persons, events, and institutions. Okay. It's how things in the New Testament relate to things in the Old Testament, but how the things in the New Testament are greater and better, how they have a climax in the New Testament. There's sort of, there's a picture, there's a symbol, there's something that happens in the Old Testament that isn't quite clear to us. If you're reading Genesis 14 in your daily Bible reading and you come across Melchizedek, you're probably not thinking, how does this guy relate to the New Testament? You're probably just going to gloss over it and say, oh, great little aside, well, let's keep reading about Abraham. But what's important is to realize that things in the Old Testament have their fulfillment usually in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that's what this Melchizedek has. Melchizedek is the type, and Christ would then be the antitype. All right? So it leads us to a better and clearer and fuller understanding of Jesus and Jesus' work. So that's what a type is. That's what typology studies. That's how you can understand Old Testament things in relationship to New Testament things, most basically defined. Okay, now that I've lost everybody, we'll keep going through our passage. But I want us to see that. And so then you have the fact, as we you know, just sort of rush through some of these verses, how Abraham thought this Melchizedek was so important that he gave him a tithe. Now, Abraham, as far as we knew at this point, didn't owe anybody anything. He didn't need to answer to anybody. But what this Melchizedek did was he blessed Abraham. He blessed Abraham. And so Abraham did the little that he could back and said, I realize that all that I have been given is God's. And since you are a priest... You deserve to be blessed by God through how God has blessed me. So I'm going to give you a part of what I've gotten. And that's what happened. That's what he was given. And Abraham himself received a blessing. We read that, right? Blessed be Abraham. Okay. Now, verse 11, we'll skip down to. It says, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, this means... Perfection was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood. If all you had was the Old Testament, if we didn't have the New Testament, you would not be able to understand salvation fully and properly. There's nothing else besides the fact that you've learned that the Bible is one big story that takes a lot of time to study and understand. It's that if all you had was the Old Testament, that would not be enough you would not be able to understand what it all meant, what it all led to. You would have a picture. You would have a fuzzy idea of maybe what it was going to look like. But until you get Jesus Christ, you don't know exactly what all of that means. And that's why it's so important that we look at Jesus Christ so clearly and continually because we can see how He is able to be perfect. This has already been mentioned before in Hebrews. Let's see if I can look in chapter 5. 
the first time we find this guy's name, Melchizedek. Starting in chapter 5, verse 8, there in Hebrews. Although he was a son, talking about Jesus, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So, you could not obtain perfection through the Levitical priesthood. Although they did everything that they possibly could, according to the law that was given to them through Moses, they still could not be perfect. They still could not be complete. Whenever you see the word perfect, it's probably okay here in Hebrews to think of the word complete. You could not be complete. You could not be fully and totally and forever made complete. Only through Jesus Christ can you be made totally and forever made complete. That's what he continues to say as we skip down a few more verses. And let's see here. Where are we at now? Pick up in verse 23 in Hebrews 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost, completely, fully, forever. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So, though many important and good things happened through the priests in the Old Testament, through the tribe of Levi and all that came afterwards, though we see and get glimpses of what the cost of sin was in God's economy, what it cost day after day, time after time, for people to be put right with God, they could never fully, completely be made right with God through the law of the Old Testament. Christ had to come to fulfill that law and to be the perfect once and for all sacrifice that would forever, forever change and forever, he would then forever be the high priest who never dies. You don't have to worry about having another genealogy. You don't have to worry about the priesthood continuing through people because it continues forever through Jesus Christ. We've said this, this is how we looked at it in chapter 1. Jesus Christ has ascended to the Father and sits at his right hand. He has finished. He has said, it is done. The work that I have done is full and complete. All of what the Old Testament led up to led to Jesus. And you have Jesus described as he always lives to make intercession for us. Verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. This is how Jesus is described. This is not how any of the prior priests could have been described. They were not perfect. They were not complete. They were not innocent. They were stained by sin. They had to deal with their own sin. Verse 27, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The other priests were not complete. They were not perfect. 
And so they could not make their people perfect. They themselves weren't perfect, and they couldn't make the people perfect either. But what Jesus has done is he has done that. He has made himself complete. He has become the complete and total forever sacrifice once and for all. And so then now he is able to make us as his people, as his followers, perfect and complete. He is able to do that. And we can't find that in anyone else. Acts 4.12, as we started reading through the book of Acts, um, there are many great and wonderful, miraculous events that happen. The things that the Holy Spirit does through God's people, through the apostles, is nothing short of spectacular and amazing. And in the beginning of Acts, in Acts chapter 4, Peter is preaching. And he says, in chapter 4, verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is nothing else. Peter, a Jew himself, he recognizes, having followed Jesus for years, having received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, he understands that there was nothing else that could get him to the point where he is now. There was nothing else that could get anybody else to the point of full and undeniable forever salvation. Only Jesus Christ can accomplish that. Jesus Christ is the only way to have a right relationship with God. You see, that's what the priests did in the Old Testament. They tried to help maintain, intercede, to help maintain that relationship between God and the people. But they couldn't do it perfectly. But now Jesus can, and Jesus is at God's right hand, constantly, forever, interceding for us. We can depend on Him. He's trustworthy, because although He died, He was raised from the dead. That's what we believe, and that's why we think He has the power, why we believe He has the power to continually intercede for us. He's been made perfect forever. We've said a lot of things this morning. And as we sort of wrap all of this up, you might still be thinking, I still have no idea who this guy was. I have no idea why he was so important. And you know what? In some regard, it's okay if you don't understand everything about Melchizedek. It's okay. It's okay if you don't understand everything about the Old Testament. But what we need to be sure of is that we understand Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other way. As much as we want to think in our American minds that there have got to be some other way for people to be saved, what about the people in random countries far off who've never heard about Christ? What about other, our friends 
or family who we don't have chances to talk to or that we've lost contact with. Certainly there's some hope for them. The only hope that any of us have is Jesus Christ. And so that's why when we started as a church a year ago, why it was important for us to be clear that we had a particular vision for who we were going to be. And part of that vision includes us constantly being connected to Christ to the point where we were building up each other so that we could send each other out on mission. And so that's why we have those three words, gospel, community, mission, so that as we're on mission, we can share, we can proclaim, we can declare to anyone who is ready and willing to listen that Jesus Christ is the only way by which any of us have been saved or can be saved. This is the message that we bring to each other. This is the message that we remind each other of, that we haven't been saved because we are good people. We haven't been saved because we figured out how to follow all of these random Old Testament laws. No, we follow Jesus Christ who did fulfill, who did accomplish all of those Old Testament laws perfectly. We follow Jesus Christ who was the perfect sacrifice, who is now our great high priest, who was raised from the dead to show that he had the power to defeat sin and death once and for all. We explore that once for all topic in chapters 9 and 10. We realize in chapter 8 next week, we'll talk about how he is the guarantor, how he is the mediator of a better covenant, how he has inaugurated, how he has started a new work 2,000 years ago in this world where it is clear that we are, no, we are nothing. We are no people apart from him. And so I want to encourage each of us to continue looking at who Jesus is and all of the amazing things that he has done to fulfill all of these things in the Old Testament. Study more of the Old Testament. Study more about this guy, Melchizedek. Read again this chapter 7 and think about some of the truths that are expressed here. And think about how Jesus fulfilled all those things and is better than all those things. He is our hope. Verse 25 Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So let us continue to draw near to God through our only hope, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for your word. Sometimes we come across passages that we don't understand, passages that we have to seemingly trudge through the mud in. But God, this is your word, and this was important enough for you to include it in what we have now preserved for us. And so help us to have a desire to continue to look at passages like this, where we can learn more about who Jesus is and how he's better than anything else that has ever come and how he's better than anything else that ever will be. Help us to put our hope in him because he is our only hope in this life and in the life to come.
God, help us to realize this and to live like this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.